0: we're going to be continuing uh, our study in the book of Colossians. Uh, it's a series called In Christ, Finding Our Identity in the Supreme King. And that phrase, as, as we've been seeing and as I've been saying, appears over and over throughout the book. Steve, I've got a little bit of a ring going on here. Don't know if you can find it or not. But, um, and for the last couple of weeks, we've we've just been here in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul and Timothy have been talking about various virtues that the person who is in Christ is is to put on, is to, is to wear. Two weeks ago we looked at how those virtues affect our church family. Last week we saw how those virtues play out in our individual families. And today we're going to look at a passage uh, that can be a little difficult to wrap our minds around. At one level, uh, this Uh, passage might be one that we're just sort of prone to to skip over. I don't know if any of you do that in your Bible reading. "Eh, I don't know if this has anything to do with me. And and you just go on past. This is one of those that's like, yeah, this doesn't relate. So I'm just going to skip over it. At another level, this is one of those passages that can um, stir up in us... uh, feelings of of anger even, because we think it's condoning something that the Bible shouldn't condone. We have this sort of, "Mm, that can't be right when we read these verses. And I I hope to show that this passage actually has uh, a number of takeaways for those of us who are in Christ in the 21st century. I'm going to start by reading the passage and then I'm going to pray before we try to understand what's being said here. Uh, again, we're in Colossians 3. We're going to begin at verse 22, uh, which is on page 951 of the Bibles that the ushers handed out. Colossians 3, 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every respect, not only when they are watching like those who are strictly people pleasers, but with a sincere heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people, because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ, for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there are no exceptions. Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, ask again this morning that you would open our ears, uh, our minds, uh, but especially our hearts this morning to, uh, to see, to, to hear, to understand what it is that you are saying uh, in these verses and, uh, and, and what we might take away from it, what we need to uh, hear and apply uh, to our lives as, as we do this. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, before we talk about what these verses might mean uh, for us today, we need to spend a little time unraveling what Paul is talking about when he addresses slaves. Uh, When most of us think of slavery, I think, uh, we're thinking of one thing. Uh, and that would be the slavery of African peoples uh, in the early part of our nation's history. But in the first uh, century, there were about uh, five different kinds or categories of slaves that most people would have thought about uh, when the word slave was used. And I think it can be helpful for us to see what those were. The first and, and lowest Uh, category of slaves in the first century, were uh, gladiators and prostitutes, brothel prostitutes especially. And their existence, um, you you might think, has nothing in common, but they they share this in common. Their their purpose uh, uh, was that they were objects uh, for someone else's entertainment or pleasure. Uh, They had no hope of ever being able to, to break out of this existence and they generally did not live uh, very long uh, for, for obvious reasons. They were known as chattel slaves. Uh, the word chattel literally means cattle. They were, they were animals that were property uh, of someone else. They were bought and sold as property and they were slaves for life. No, no chance of getting out of this. Next level up in the categories of slaves were those who worked in the mines and quarries. And these slaves were only slightly better off. They didn't exist for someone else's pleasure, but they also didn't live very long, again, for obvious reasons. And they also were slaves for life. They were chattel slaves. The next category of slave were those who worked in agriculture. And those workers could actually work their way up to management uh, positions and potentially even buy their way uh, out of slavery. Uh, many of these slaves were indentured servants, meaning they had agreed to become a slave uh, to pay off some debts or maybe even to save up money for a better life. So in some cases it was a, a path forward to a better life. But even though we're out of uh, chattel slavery category here is it, still a hard, a hard life. Next category of slave up in the in the first century was the largest uh, category that existed. It made up about one third of the total population. Interestingly, about one third of the population were slaves. Uh, they were domestic or household slaves. Now. This kind of blew my mind when I, when I read this. But jobs in this category included barber, butler, cook, hairdresser, laundry, nurse, teacher, secretary, seamstress, accountant, and even in some cases, physician. Isn't that interesting? We don't think of those as, as slave positions, but uh, uh, that's what made up the, the domestic uh, slave population. Because people weren't technically free. Uh, but they did enjoy many freedoms and uh, many of them really became a part of the family. Slaves in this category might be able to buy themselves out of slavery, but for many of them, even given the chance to do that, they would choose not to. They would choose to remain in slavery. Why? Well, as Americans, some of our highest values are... Uh, our, our freedom, our liberty, um, uh, happiness—you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness—that's kind of at the core of what of what we value. Not so in the first century. First century in the in the Middle East, survival was the highest priority. And if you had the good fortune of working in a household uh, for a good and and kind master you really had it made. All of your needs were provided for. You had a place to sleep, food to eat, clothes to wear. Um, domestic slaves in this category often lived better off than their free counterparts in similar jobs, um, especially if they were a slave with a with a wealthy family. This is probably the, the category that Paul was... Um, addressing in Colossians 3. And it, and it would explain why he included these comments uh, to slaves and masters in the household um, rules, guidelines that, that uh, he gave, along with husbands and wives and, and children. Uh, slaves and masters are, are right in there. Well, the last category of slave in the first century Roman Empire was the imperial or public slave. We might refer to them as white-collar slaves, right? Uh, they were owned by the, the Roman government. They provided uh, things like secretarial services, accounting services. Some of them even made it into the court system as as lawyers. Uh, many of them received a wage on top of their uh, slave Uh, provisions, and many of them had the possibility of being granted their freedom in in certain circumstances. Um, So if we want to think of Old Testament examples of imperial or or public slaves, um, we might think of like Daniel or Joseph. Uh, Both of these men became trusted and, and valued by the highest rulers in the land, and yet they technically were, were slaves. So as we approach the passage today, the first thing we need to understand is what slavery looked like in the first century, and hopefully you can see that it, it wasn't all the same. It wasn't a, a one-size-fits-all. Working in a mine or a quarry was a very different existence than being a domestic slave or a public servant. The second thing that I I think is important for us to understand before we even get to the text here is how the Bible views slavery. Um, Because if if we don't, again, we can kind of get ourselves worked up if we think that the Bible or Paul is condoning the kind of slavery we think of in the early part of our nation's history. There's two... Uh, places there 's more that speak to it, but two that speak to it pretty directly and give us a clear understanding of how God views chattel slavery the kind of slavery that that uh, especially Africans uh, some Chinese people, even Native Americans uh, and, and some other races were subjected to in our country. Uh, the first passage I want to point out is exodus twenty one sixteen which says, whoever steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. And anyone found in possession of a kidnapped man shall be put to death. So although slavery existed in the Old Testament, I think we can agree that God abhors the stealing of people from their home and selling them into slavery. It's a it's a crime that, that God believes is, is worthy of the death penalty. Penalty. Um, but what about the New Testament? Isn't Paul kind of promoting slavery here in Colossians when he, when he tells slaves to obey their masters? Not this kind of slavery. Um, not chattel slavery where, where people who have been made in the image of God are viewed as, as property to be bought and sold. Um, in in uh, First Timothy... Uh, chapter 1, 9 and 10, uh, Paul gives a list, and, and Paul does this in several places where he gives a list of sinful behaviors that, that the gospel has, has come to free us from, and one of those is slave traders. I think I bolded it there, yeah, slave traders. So so what we can see just from these two places is that in both Old and New Testament, Uh, God condemns the buying and selling of of people as property, which means that Paul is not condoning that kind of slavery in Colossians 3. Okay, now I want to say one more uh, thing about this kind of slavery before we look at this morning's passage. I think, because I see it in my own life, I think uh, it's easy for us to think that because slavery was uh, abolished in the United States, that it just it doesn't exist anymore in our country. And if that's what you think, um, you haven't been paying attention. Um, did you know that between 240,000 and 325,000 women and children are victims of human trafficking in the U.S.? Between 240 and 325,000 women and children. Numbers are are a little hard to get to because so much of it goes unreported. Um, Somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 join that number every year. 80% of the victims of human trafficking are from the U.S., Uh, the the, the rest are um, uh, brought across our borders. If those numbers don't bother you, this certainly will. The average age of the victims is 12 to 14 years old. In Oregon, there were nearly 1,000 victims of human trafficking last year. Uh, Most of those were in the tri-county area around Portland, but our own county has been impacted by this as well just, just recently in the news. I think that Christians ought to be the loudest voices against this abhorrent evil. And in fact, many Christians are the loudest voices. There are a number of Christian organizations who are working to fight against this slavery in the U.S. as well as all kinds of slavery around the world. And uh, if if this is... Uh, going to cause you to lose sleep at night, I'd encourage you to come and talk to me because I've got a list of resources, organizations that are working to help uh, fight against this. And you may be interested uh, in, in uh, helping out with, with one of those organizations, so come and see me. Okay, so our passage this morning uh, is clearly not about this kind of slavery or human trafficking. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, it's probably most closely related to that category called domestic servant that included jobs like barbers and butlers and cooks and hairdressers and secretaries and seamstresses, teachers, accountants, doctors. And there's not, to to push this too hard, there's there's not really a one-to-one correlation between this passage and our jobs today. We're not slaves working for a master, right? Sometimes it might feel that way, but but we're really not. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, I think there are some principles that do apply to how Christians view their work, whether they are employees or employers, whether they are sort of a peon in the in the company machine, or whether they're high up in management, there are things uh, for us to learn. It's interesting that in Paul's context, he didn't try to do away with the cultural norm of, of servants and masters. So he, didn't, he didn't call servants to unite and stand up for their rights. Right? He did something that was actually much more uh, subversive, uh, radical, uh, revolutionary than that, he he called slaves to rise up by being better servants. Uh, he called masters to a way of leading and managing uh, their workers that no school of slave management would ever have taught, because what what Paul told them to do was treat your slaves, your servants if we can say it in today's language, your employees with justice and fairness. uh, Be a good manager. And so he called both slaves and masters, and this this is what was so crazy, he called both of them to see themselves as co-servants of King Jesus. And that No one had ever talked like that, right? There was always this division. Uh, Earlier on in chapter 3, Paul said, these divisions are gone. This is an example of one of those really stark divisions that, that Paul says, he doesn't unravel it and say, nope, we can't have masters and slaves anymore. He says, oh, you're looking at it wrong. You're both servants of King Jesus. Now, most of us have to work. Uh, If if Paul were writing this section to us today as employees and employers rather than slaves and masters, what would he call us to do? Uh, I I think there are several things. I'm going to read the passage once more and then uh, see if we can sort of tease out of this some principles. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in every respect, not only when they are watching like those who are strictly people-pleasers, but with a sincere heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people, because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ, for the one who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there are no exceptions. Masters, treat your slaves with justice and fairness, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So first of all, if, if Paul were writing this to us today, I think that he would say we all have to learn to be servants. And we've sort of heard this over and over again in this chapter. We are all to be humble servants of one another. We saw it in the context of our church family. We saw it in the context of our individual families. And we see it again here in the context of the workplace. Uh, Paul, in in this passage, is addressing actual servants. But if he were writing writing to us, I think he would say, remember who you follow, who's the king. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be a servant like he was. And then, remarkably, he gives the same warning to masters in chapter 4, verse 1. They are also servants of a master in heaven. See, it doesn't matter what your job is. If you're in Christ, Paul says, you're a servant. This is just getting better and better, isn't it? You're all lifted up here. You're all slaves, right? So that's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, I think we need to see in these verses that we need to develop an indifference for the approval of others. So much of our work and you guys know this, is about performance, right? There are goals and, and quotas to meet, benchmarks to, to surpass, graphs and charts to show how our team or company is performing. And a lot of those things, are, they're just a part of doing a good job. They're not inherently bad. We do it in the church as well. There, there are ways for us to see how we're doing, right? But we've got to be careful, or we'll find ourselves doing those things to seek approval, to get noticed, to try to build a name for ourselves, right? And there's a danger that we will slip into to, to people-pleasing, to currying favor. And when we do that, there's even a greater temptation to compromise on our integrity. A follower of Jesus cannot afford to sacrifice integrity to gain others' attention. can't afford to compromise on integrity for any reason, but it becomes easy to do when you're trying to get others' attention or when someone else's approval. Our work, uh, Paul says, is supposed to be from a sincere heart. That word sincere means no pleats, no folds. It's, it's a piece of cloth that is held out you can see everything that's there, right? What you see is what you get. Uh, not, uh, th- th- those who are in Christ uh, should be hard workers all the time, not just when people are watching, all the time. And, and that is easier to do if we learn the third principle, which is this, we have to know who the real boss is. Who's your boss? Now, now this, is, this is more than just having a bumper sticker that says, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. Okay, that's easy to slap a sticker on and, you know. This, this mindset of understanding that even in the workplace, Jesus is our boss is not easy. Um but, but it's doable. There is a, there is a way uh, to uh, approach our work. Um, uh, and I, I think it comes through just a discipline of, of understanding this. Um, there is a way to do our work out of reverence for God. Um, at the end of the day, the, the person who is more concerned about pleasing God than they are people, um, they're going to they're gonna be more concerned what God thinks. Uh, this person's no longer in bondage to human intimidation. You ever been intimidated by a boss? I, I have. It's not fun. When I, when I feel that, I, I start shaking. Uh, some, of the, some of the old bullying stuff comes up in me, right? I have to remember that person's not really the boss, right? God is. Uh, our work in, in this sense can be done as an act of worship. Uh, uh, our, our performance can be seen in, in relation to his rule, okay? And for bosses, they can learn to oversee people with that same awareness that they are working for another master. They, they can understand who the real boss is, right? Uh, that their management of, of, of people becomes an act of, of worship to God. And specifically in this passage, Paul says they must treat uh, those under them justly and fairly. We probably all know bosses who haven't been like this. They're not fair. They're not just. Uh, they don't treat their employees well. But Hopefully, you've also known bosses who were like this. I have. And, and those kinds of bosses have some of the best Hard-working employees ever because those employees want to do a good job for a boss like that, even if they're not believers. So fourth principle, work wholeheartedly, not halfheartedly. Uh, a Christ follower doesn't just go through the motions, doesn't, you know, clock in, get through the day, clock out, and, and get paid for it. Instead, those who are in Christ do everything they do as unto the Lord. That's what verse 23 says here. Uh, enthusiastically or, or out of the soul. And, and Paul implies here that this will translate into work that's well done, uh, work that's done with diligence and, and excellence. First 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that how a Christian works become a Christian becomes a credit or discredit to the gospel. How we do our jobs becomes a credit for the gospel or a discredit to the gospel. Uh, My my parents were were business owners. Uh, Sadly, sometimes it was the Christians who were the, the worst employees. Happily, Sometimes it was the Christians who were the best employees as well. So, which am I? Which are you? Uh, you might respond to this with something like, okay, do my work with all my soul, all my heart? In my job? You kidding? You don't know my job, right? I think Paul would say to us, it doesn't matter what your job is. You might be cleaning floors or changing diapers or clearing drains, collecting trash, fixing roads on a monotonous assembly line somewhere. I don't know. But whatever it is, we can do it enthusiastically because of who we serve, who the master is. Maybe your beef is with your boss more, more than your work. You basically like your job, just can't stand your boss. So you say, you don't know my boss. Man, what does Paul say? Oh, yeah, I do. His name's Jesus. He's the boss. Could, really? I mean, could there be any greater motiv- motivation if, if we could wrap our minds around this? And again, if you're the manager, if you're the boss, what Paul says here is you're not the boss. If you're the boss, you're not the boss. Right? The ultimate boss is Jesus. And I think we could apply uh, that, that same truth from 1 Timothy 6 to bosses too. How you manage your employees will be either a credit to the gospel or a hindrance to the gospel, a discredit to it. Well, the the last principle I think we take away from these verses is that we have to do our work with an eternal perspective, not a a temporal perspective. Uh, When all is said and done, the books will be balanced. They will. Uh, Rewards will be given to those who have worked hard for the Lord and those who have done wrong will be repaid for that as well. It's really easy for us to think that pay raises and promotions are the rewards that we're working for. And those, those things are nice, especially in the economic days that we're living in right now, right? But they're not the ultimate reward. We work for a master who, who promises to reward our work that is done as unto Christ and to call, account, call to account the, the wrongs that were done both to us and by us. Sometimes I think we can begin to wonder if it's worth the wait. You know, we're slogging along through this. Yeah, I know about those promises, but this is hard. And I just want to say this morning it is. It's worth the wait. Because our master, our true boss, has got the best retirement plan out there. His health benefits, amazing. Every, every health plan I've ever been on is like Band-Aids on what's broken, you know? His health plan, brand new bodies. We'll, we'll just fix the whole thing. This past week, Becky and I got to sing and pray one of Becky's dear friends into heaven. Uh, after I, I don't, we're trying to remember how long she's been frozen uh, from the from the ravaging effects of MS for a decade or more, maybe fifteen years. Not anymore. Not anymore. Let me let me say this in closing. Um, We're really adept at compartmentalizing our lives. Uh, We can begin to think that what we do at work, or for that matter, really, uh, how we spend our time during the week, Uh, what we do there is secular, and what we do here at church is spiritual. Spiritual. But I think what Paul is showing us in this passage is that it's all spiritual, all of it. Whatever our earthly vocation may be, whether it's as a common laborer or or a salesperson, a circuit board designer, a quality control inspector, corporate chairman, a pastor, all of this is to be done in light of our calling to God. All of it is to be done from the from the perspective of our identity in Christ. And in declaring that everything including our work is within the sphere of Christ's lordship, Paul is saying work's not over here and our spiritual lives over here, it's all over here. Or It's all inside that realm of our spiritual lives. And when our work is connected with the spirit, work will never be a wasted effort. Because when it's done as an act of service to God, it gets gets elevated to something larger than work. It becomes graced somehow with meaning and purpose and and dignity. No matter what your job is, is. It has spiritual significance. All of the Bible scholars who, who comment on this passage say that it, it all points back to verse 17 of this same chapter. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all. You've heard preachers say this before. You know what the Greek word under that word all means? All. <laughs> do it all. All in the name of Christ Jesus. This includes everything we do as a church family, everything we do in our individual families, and as we've seen in these verses today, everything we do in the workplace. Do it all in the name of Christ Jesus. Do it all in anticipation of his approval, longing to hear him say those words that Lucas read earlier from Matthew 25 well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us as we continue to just be presented with more and more areas of our lives that need to come under the surrender to King Jesus. This is not an easy one. Uh, but we ask for your help in figuring that out. Maybe even as we go through the rest of today, what will tomorrow look like? When I clock in, what is going to be different in my mindset? And Lord, I'm, I want to pray this morning for everyone who's, who's listening to this. I, I pray, Lord, my desire is that you would show them immediate results. If they will do that, that, that you will show them that there is a tangible difference in approaching work from that perspective. So help us all uh, bring everything we do into the realm of surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.